Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we go on a ride along with a crisis response team in Summit County. They're worried about having four fire trucks and six police cars out in front of their house. That's what they're going to worry about. They're not going to worry about trying to talk to us. Plus, we hear how the pandemic has changed college plans for many Coloradans. And we talk with the state's new environmental justice manager about what they'll be focused on. That's coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is updating some of its mask guidance. The agency says it's recommending everyone, including those who are vaccinated, wear masks in public indoor spaces in communities where COVID-19 is surging. Scientists cited new information about the ability of the Delta variant to spread even among vaccinated people. It's not yet clear whether schools will require masks for teachers, staff, and students, but the CDC is recommending they be worn indoors. Of course, this isn't the first time that COVID-19 placed a heavy burden on schools. Last year, due to online schooling or socially distant classes, many students, specifically college students, chose to defer their studies. This year, while many students will be returning back to college, some are not setting foot on the campuses they initially intended to, and others have decided to suspend their schooling indefinitely. For more on how the pandemic has changed college paths, we're joined by Chalkbeat Colorado's Jason Gonzalez. Jason, welcome to Colorado Edition. Thank you for having me. So you write that the pandemic has reshaped how incoming college students are choosing which college education might be right for them. Tell us about some of the factors that they're thinking about now that maybe they weren't thinking about before COVID. In talking to students, what I've found is the pandemic has really defined how they think about just college in a larger way. Should you go out of state? Um, Should you maybe go to community college? What's the safety protocols that are going to be in place? Or as some students have done over the last year, taking time off. And what does that look like? There are a lot of decisions that students are making during this pandemic that really look at their different options for college and what's really best for their own personal situation. Well, Jason, let's zoom into something that you'd mentioned there, and that's safety on campus. Obviously, one of the things that's top of mind for many college students, what does a COVID-safe campus look like? And are colleges kind of going through what most everyone else is in education right now, where they're just kind of in a wait and see pattern? Yes, they are. But at the same time, colleges in Colorado have been very proactive in saying we want students on campus to be vaccinated. That includes faculty and staff, at least the four years. The the two-year community colleges, they're not requiring students to be vaccinated, but they are encouraging students to get their vaccinations and just uh, create a safer environment for everyone else around them. But yes, you're right. It's a little bit of a holding pattern to see how they approach the next year with changing guidance. You also write that some students have felt a little aimless during the pandemic, but also other students were able to kind of focus and narrow in on a career path. And I thought that was interesting. Can you tell us more about what you were hearing from students? Yeah, I interviewed one specific student, Hui Bui. He spent the last year cutting hair. 
And he was working in a barber shop and really thinking about what his college options are. It was always in his mind to go to college after deferring for a year. And during that time, he really found out that he wanted to own a barbershop and maybe even turn it into a franchise. And he's going to be majoring in business. And he's really excited about to be heading to college at the University of Colorado Boulder in the fall. But unfortunately, there's been a lot of students who during this time who have deferred, who are not coming back. And Bowie did see that, see some of his friends who aren't going to college in the fall. You know, there is a worry and a concern that there are students out there who are not coming back. I guess let's take a look at things from the perspective of these schools. They're also concerned about enrollment and things like this. How are they looking at this issue? As far as what they believe the fall admissions and population will be, they believe it'll be much higher than last year. But they also know a lot of those students are going to come in having not been in a classroom setting for the last year, year and a half. You know, they're trying to meet students where they're at and support them um, as best as they can in the individual needs that they might have after a year of disrupted learning. The schools are are definitely cognizant of the challenges students have faced in the last year. And folks I've talked to in missions offices and the counseling services are really just trying to see how they can best meet the needs of students. We've all had this collective experience, but we've all had this very individual experience in the last year going through our own struggles, distance from everyone. So it's going to be a bit of a challenge for the schools and, and they do recognize that and they're trying to do their best to support students as best as they can. Jason Gonzalez covers higher education for Chalkbeat Colorado. Jason, thanks as always. Yeah, thank you for having me. Police departments across the state are trying to deal with the issue of officers responding to calls involving a mental health crisis, for which they don't always have the skills, training, or the time to deal with. That's where co-responder teams enter the picture. These pair up an officer and a mental health clinician to respond to these types of calls. It's a movement that's gaining popularity, and as KUNC's Lee Patterson reports, the program in Summit County is expanding. Summit County's co-responders, called the SMART team, which is short for System-Wide Mental Assessment Response, pile into an unmarked silver SUV. I'm with them as they go out on the first call of the day. You say what we're going to meet Frisco Elementary. There's a clinician and two law enforcement officers. The cops carry guns, SWAT gear is in the trunk. One of them actually had to use it on a call the night before. But today, all three are in street clothes like usual. Khaki pants, dark shirts, baseball hats, sunglasses. Just to help break down that barrier a little bit um, to be more approachable. Missy Baroni uh, is the clinician. Know, some folks are, are pretty triggered by law enforcement and uniforms and marked cars based on their own, you know, history, life experiences. Studies show that people in crisis and struggling with mental health routinely intersect with the criminal justice system. 36% of people in Colorado prisons have a mental health need, and 70% deal with substance abuse. Deputy Brian Limick says their approach of no uniforms and sirens also cuts down on the embarrassment people may feel. And if they're worried about having four fire trucks and six police cars out in front of their house, that's what they're going to worry about. They're not going to worry about trying to talk to us. Today, the team is responding to an unusual call. Deputies from the sheriff's office are serving an eviction notice to a woman living at her boyfriend's place in county housing. 
He had just been arrested on domestic violence charges. That's why he's losing his apartment. She's pregnant and about to give birth. This is a bad situation. And that's why we're going, the SMART team's going to support her. That's Steve Mays, the other law enforcement officer. To make sure that she doesn't go into a crisis, or, and if she does, that we, you know, we can take care of her if she does. The deputies, parked nearby in another vehicle, do not want to evict this woman. We wait in the SUV while they figure out what to do. Across the country, officers respond to high volumes of mental health situations. Hundreds of calls and referrals came to Summit County's SMART team last year through 911 and from individuals as well as other police departments. It's mostly welfare checks, serious mental illness, and suicide. But the SMART team hasn't always been available. It's very difficult for us as a community to say, hey, you need to have your crisis between the hours of 9 and 5. Lieutenant Derek Gutzweiler oversees the team. Starting in August, it'll expand from two co-responder units to four, plus a new mobile crisis unit, staffed only by clinicians, no cops, that can respond to county residents when they call the state's suicide hotline. And this expanded coverage will give us 24-7 responses when people are in crisis, where people are in crisis. Co-responder programs like this one are quickly becoming more and more popular across Colorado. In 2017, legislation authorized the state's Office of Behavioral Health to fund eight of these programs. That number is now up to 26, and other funding sources do exist. But there are challenges, from resource shortages to trouble recruiting and retaining clinicians. Back at the apartment complex, Summit County Sheriff's deputies did ultimately serve the eviction notice. They were joined by co-responders Steve Mays and Missy Baroni. How'd it go? Sweet as can be. Gosh darn. She took it pretty well, considering. Yeah. They asked if she was suicidal, offered resources, and connected her with local victim advocates who were helping with housing. Baroni says that co-responder programs may not be the sole solution to problems in policing, but when it comes to mental health... To have folks that specialize in our area and are trained for it and can more effectively work with folks. So I guess I see it as being, yeah, part of, a part of the reform. So far, outcome data from the sheriff's office is promising. Last year, the team issued 20 mental health holds and made only one arrest. Instead, connecting people with services like therapy and substance abuse treatment. Lee Patterson, KUNC. And as communities across Colorado look into adopting various crisis response models like co-responder teams, some experts and advocacy organizations are calling for even more of a shift away from police involvement in mental health. KUNC's Lee Patterson is with us now for more. Hi, Lee. Hey there. We just listened to your story on Summit County's SMART team. What other models are out there right now? On the police department side, many have something called crisis intervention teams, CIT. They receive specialized training in how to de-escalate and respond mostly to behavioral health calls and then usually connect people with services. Then we have the co-responder model, like in Summit County. And then there are the unarmed mobile teams. Again, part of the Summit County expansion includes a mobile crisis team that will respond to local calls that come in from the state suicide hotline. This is without law enforcement. Denver's Star Van is another example of this. This is a, a unit staffed by a clinician and a paramedic. They go out and respond to low-level 911 calls. 
Variations on this model include peer responders, and those are folks who have gone through crises themselves and can relate in a personal way. So that's kind of a highlight of some of what's out there. Walk us through the argument against these programs. I think the main criticism is that these programs are still police-centric. And some believe that they do not have to be, that co-responder programs essentially put more money towards policing at a time when some communities are calling for the opposite. The Vieira Institute of Justice put out a report on this topic last fall. The issue was under discussion at the State House this past legislative session here in Colorado during committee hearings for a bill that would have increased funding for co-responder programs. So these discussions are happening. I talked with Vinny Cervantes with the Denver Alliance for Street Health Response. Uh, DASHER is uh, the acronym there. He and his organization advocate for the kind of community response programs that don't involve police at all. Especially black and brown communities, especially communities that experience mental health crisis, especially folks who are unhoused, the very presence of a law enforcement officer and that gun and that badge and the ability to arrest somebody immediately escalates situations that don't need to be. And that's one of the big issues. How often are these co-responder teams going out and responding to violent situations? You know, the sheriff's office didn't provide that information. The sense I got from spending time in Summit County is that the SMART team isn't responding to violent situations all the time but that it does happen. Summit County and many other areas have decided to go with the co-responder model. What did the sheriff's department say about the need for law enforcement presence? I did ask Lieutenant Derek Gutzweiler that question. He oversees the Summit County Sheriff's Office co-responder program. I think maybe from the outside looking in, you might think, hey, it's a cop and they don't belong there. That's not true at all. And uh, when we receive calls for people that are suicidal or homicidal, That's who responds. No therapist wants to go into a room with a person that's reportedly suicidal with a gun. Lee, I'm hearing some contradictions here. Police are necessary, yet police can escalate situations. Can you unpack that for us? Part of what's going on is that these are different perspectives from different people, but also the appropriate crisis response really depends on what types of calls are going to these teams. A 911 dispatcher, for example, might not send out an unarmed community responder to help someone who's suicidal and homicidal and has weapons. On the other hand, is it necessary to involve police in a situation involving an unhoused person who is maybe off their meds, as another example? I think the bottom line is that in each community, the needs and wants are going to be different. So what works in Denver will likely be different than what works in Summit County. Lee Patterson covers mental health for KUNC. Thank you so much for your reporting on this. You're welcome. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. A brand new unit was recently formed at the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment. Its mandate to manage environmental justice efforts across state departments. That got us wondering about environmental justice and what this new unit will be working on in the months and years ahead. Joel Miner was selected to head up that unit as Colorado's new environmental justice manager, and he's with us now. Joel, welcome to Colorado Edition. Thank you, Henry. I'm excited to be here. So environmental justice is sort of a lofty topic, and I'm wondering if we can sort of begin with an explanation, maybe at the ground level, of what that is and what's important to understand about it. I think the EPA, the United States Environmental Protection Agency, has a really wonderful definition of environmental justice. And that definition is the fair treatment and meaningful involvement of all people, regardless of race, color, national origin, or income, 
with respect to the development, implementation, and enforcement of environmental laws, regulations, and policies. That's a mouthful, and I think there are some parts of it that are really important. One is meaningful involvement and fair treatment are both aspects of the definition of environmental justice. So it means that people who maybe come from communities that are disproportionately impacted by sources of pollution have a say in how environmental policies are developed, implemented, and enforced. It also means fair treatment, and that fair treatment refers to trying to eliminate those disparities in the amount of pollution that is concentrated in certain communities, and also trying to improve access to environmental benefits, things like parks and open space and green areas for all communities, especially those who have disproportionately less access to those areas in the status quo. Give us, if you will, sort of a state of the state of environmental justice in Colorado. With this new unit, clearly there are folks who think this is important enough to create this new arm of CDPHE, but where are we at generally with environmental justice in the state? I think we're at a place where we've made a lot of progress and there's still a lot more progress that really needs to be made, which is why CDPHG has created the dedicated environmental justice unit and also why the General Assembly adopted the Environmental Justice Act, House Bill 21-1266 this year. So there is a lot of great work underway here at CDPHG. I think our hazardous materials and waste management division, their remediation team who oversees Superfund sites, has established some really meaningful relationships with disproportionately impacted communities through community advisory groups um, and citizen advisory councils that help oversee those cleanups in places like Pueblo. Um, and our water quality control division has developed some great principles for community engagement and permitting decisions. And we've even come up with a dedicated web page just for the environmental justice issues in Commerce City in North Denver, which is in area that has a lot of different sources of environmental impact. And we're also going to be asking communities to help us understand what the priorities should be. And that's what the meaningful engagement concept means, right, is having community-led and community-driven decisions around environmental justice. I imagine the work of your office and sort of some of the goals you have with environmental justice could be at odds with the goals and mandates of other state departments or even private development across the state. Is there a world in which environmental justice efforts come into conflict with environmental progress? And is that something that's going on in Colorado? I'm not sure I see conflict as the framework. I think that there are opportunities for collaboration to ensure that community voices are at the table in environmental decision making. And that could mean helping community members engage in ongoing state permitting decisions or other rulemaking decisions that really do have impacts for communities. And I'm excited by the opportunities to collaborate and to try to make sure that there aren't, for example, unintended consequences of a policy that ends up concentrating cumulative impacts of pollution more in one community than another and making sure that we are engaging throughout the state in a way that really brings all the relevant voices in to help us make better policy that will be better for the health of all Coloradans. With such a interest in bringing folks to the table, I imagine that a lot of Coloradans maybe just don't have a extreme knowledge base for something like the environment or environmental justice. What do you think is critical for us to understand, especially as you look to bring people to the table? What are you looking for them to understand? I think that community members, all of us, we know our own communities and we know our lived experience in our own environments. We know what it's like when there's too much pollution or dust and 
we know what it's like when things feel clean and healthy. And I think that that experience is very valuable and that there can be ways of really bridging that communication. So someone who's engaging with an agency doesn't always have to know the monitoring threshold for a particulate matter above which action has to be taken, but can say there's been a lot of dust when this thing is happening. How can we try to work together to solve that problem so my community is healthier? So one of our roles in the environmental justice unit is to really serve as a liaison with communities so that we can help maybe translate something from the technical language that might be used by the engineers at a state agency into something that's more understandable for community and the other way to translate community concerns into language that makes a little more sense to the technical efforts. We'll also be collaborating with CDPHE's tribal liaison to try to provide a good government-to-government relationship with the tribes in Colorado, the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe and Southern Ute Indian Tribe, in a way that puts the tribal goals at the forefront and really respects tribal sovereignty. And I'm excited for that collaboration, and I think it speaks to the fact that environmental justice is a statewide issue. It's not just only an issue in urban areas or just in the Denver area. It really is something we want to explore on a statewide basis. Joel Miner is the new environmental justice manager for the state of Colorado. Joel, thanks for speaking with us. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. The pandemic forced us to press pause on a lot of life's special moments, vacations, graduation parties, and weddings. But as the country continues to reopen and more people get vaccinated, marriages and ceremonies are surging this summer, including in America's wedding capital, Las Vegas. Nate Hedgie has more for KUNC. Brandon Paul has got the look. The dyed black pompadour, the bedazzled suit, the sunglasses. He's an Elvis impersonator, and right now he's guiding two young women through their vows at the Graceland Chapel in downtown Las Vegas. I will never step on your blue suede shoes. (laughs) This is the eighth wedding he's performed today, and Paul looks a little tired. His voice is raspy. But after the women are married, he still cues up the big finale on the chapel sound system. Paul is singing karaoke style over the song, and then he jumps up onto a pew. One more kiss, give her a kiss, yes, come on everybody! There they are at the Graceland Wedding Chapel! Woo! When he's alone, Paul tells me that singing is tough these days. He had COVID back in October, and he has some lingering symptoms. I find myself short of breath, and I'm going, okay, but you know what? I'm alive, and if that's it, Whatever. That's, if that's my worst thing, I can't hold the note as long as I used to, I'll deal with it. Paul is going to have to deal with that because his chapel is super busy this summer. After having to lay employees off last year, now on some weekends he's performing dozens of weddings in a single day. It's repetitive work, but he still loves it. I don't care if I sing Viva Las Vegas 20,000 times. When I watch the people, Viva Las Vegas, screaming, the guests are like, yeah, it's awesome. So I get off on that. Graceland Chapel isn't alone. The numbers of new weddings and marriage licenses issued in Clark County are higher than both last year and even before the pandemic. Things really ramped up beginning in March when vaccines became readily available and casinos increased their capacities. 
By June, about 340 couples were getting married every single day in the Las Vegas area. We've just been bombarded, but it's good. Clark County Clerk Lynn Marie Goya says weddings are a $2 billion industry here, employing 18,000 people. We have so many different options on how to get married that uh, it just permeates throughout the local economy. That economy took a big hit during the early days of the pandemic. Casinos and businesses were shut down and weddings plummeted too. In April of last year, they were down by 96%. But now business is booming. And it should be noted that COVID has boomed in recent weeks too. The number of hospitalizations doubled but appears to be tapering off. Clark County just brought back a mask mandate for employees working in crowded indoor spaces. Still, Randy Rathbun and Sophia Hyde came here from Minnesota to get hitched. They're doing it in a helicopter. Who do you know who's ever married in a helicopter? Hyde has dyed purple hair and tattoos. Rathbun is quiet and wearing a cowboy hat. They met a couple of years ago on a dating app. I've had a couple cousins married on dating websites. I know friends have been married from dating websites, so I thought I'd give it a try, and obviously he gave it a try, and voila, in a helicopter we are. She says the pandemic brought them closer together. There was no proposal. They were just walking around a mall last August and decided together to tie the knot. Hyde loves how caring her soon-to-be husband is. He's got a big heart, he's kind, and also... He has a really nice butt. I really like that part, too. I just really wanted to put that in there. Hyde and Rathbun will soon join the more than 37,000 couples who have gotten married in Sin City this year. For the Mountain West News Bureau, I'm Nate Hedgie in Las Vegas. That's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, we hear how Colorado nursing homes are thinking about potential vaccine mandates for their staff. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our production team includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thank you so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.